Welcome to the podcast for Westside at Jesus Church. We are a family of missionary disciples in West Portland who believe the church is not a religious subculture, but the making of a new humanity. It's not a building or a weekend activity, but a community of multi-ethnic, multi-generational men and women living out the light, love, and hope of Jesus to the world around us. We hope this episode encourages and empowers you to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus as we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, everybody. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, good morning. It's so good to be with you all today. I'm excited, as always, to get to open up the scriptures together, especially today as we are landing the plane in our vision series. And I don't know about you, but it's been really helpful for me over these last few weeks to have language and a picture of who we as a church family in this part of the city are seeking to become. And I know Tim is bummed that he couldn't be here today to wrap this up, but he's on vacation in Hawaii, so I'm sure he's not too bummed (laughs) about that. Uh, And he might even make a surprise appearance in today's teaching, so try not to fall asleep. Hang with me. Over the last three weeks, we as a church, we've been unpacking our vision, our vision of becoming a King Jesus family, a family that centers our whole life around submitting to the way of Jesus. And to do that, we've got three core values that kind of help guide us into this vision. Uh, Presence, formation, like Richard talked about last week. And today, we're wrapping up the series by talking about our third core value, which is creation. And so we're going to be anchored in the text of all texts to talk about creation, Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to the first page. If you don't, you can raise your hand. We'll get you one. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. So if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to start in verse 1 and then jump down a bit. But feel free to just let these words wash over you. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 26. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can sit. In his article titled, How a Gin Craze Nearly Destroyed 18th Century London, Harry Sword paints a bleak picture of London's passionate yet disruptive love affair with gin. The gin craze took place at a time in history where no one really understood how disease spread. People were drinking from the same water that they were also dumping their garbage and sewage into, and as a result, people died. 
And eventually they started avoiding water entirely and instead drank alcohol. Knowing that this was a problem, in 1751, Parliament passed a law that made gin really expensive and really hard to come by. But in response, the people of Ireland and Britain, they just started making their own, which, as you can imagine, had some pretty steep implications. One source recorded that every sixth house in England was a gin house, above which the infamous signage read, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pennies clean straw for nothing. Pretty quickly, drunkenness plagued the land, which led to increased violence, addiction, and all kinds of social devastation. To help heal their hurting society, some turned to brewing beer. Beer was lower in alcohol, and the process of brewing it killed the germs that made water dangerous. Almost amongst these aspiring brewers was a man named Arthur Guinness. Guinness was a rising entrepreneur and he found himself deeply angered by the state of drunkenness that so many of his neighbors were lost in. Guinness was also a follower of Jesus, deeply formed by the teachings of John Wesley. And he started to pray. He prayed that God would do something about the rampant alcoholism on the streets of Ireland. And as he prayed, he started to sense God calling him calling him to, quote, make a drink that will be good for them. Guinness's response to this call took him on a journey of developing a dark stout beer that contained so much iron that people felt full after drinking it. His hope was that feeling full off of a stout beer would keep people from drinking more pints and getting drunk. Guinness, and his conviction to play an active role in renewing the world around him led him to all sorts of creativity. Beyond selling a beer that made people healthier and helped break off the damage of drunkenness that had plagued his nation for decades, he also is known for founding the first Sunday schools in Ireland. He was known for his generosity to the poor and how he bravely challenged the material excesses of his own social class. So what does Guinness have to do with our vision of becoming a, G a King Jesus family? Some of you are maybe just wondering, why are we talking about beer in church? Is that allowed? I just like to keep it spicy. But I think Guinness is actually a really compelling example. I think he's an example to us of what it looks like to listen to the ache of those around us and lean into that longing with our God-given call to create, to create as a way to bless and love the world around us. And I believe that this morning, God wants to reawaken something within us, wake us up to our God-given call to create. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great for the creatives in the room. That's an inspiring story, but I'm not a creative. That's what I used to think about myself, especially being married to like the poster boy of creativity who like writes songs and like is in his feels a lot. Like I am not creative. <laughs> Maybe like you, like me, you would identify yourself more as a realist, a get stuff done kind of a person. And so when we start talking about creativity, it's really easy to self-select out of the conversation and leave that sort of thing up to the fashion forward, free-spirited, spend way too much time in a coffee shop, idealistic dreamers of the world. At least that's what I did for a long time. But I think we do that because the box that we've built around what it means to be a creative has been made up more so out of our cultural stereotypes 
than the story of the scriptures. And this morning, again, I just believe that the Holy Spirit wants to break open that box and awaken us to our collective God-given call to create. Theologians sum up this idea of living out our identity as co-creators, partners with God and participants in his work of creating and renewing and restoring the world as our creation mandate. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do a deep dive, and this next part is pretty dense. So stay with me, and then we're gonna come up for air. Are you with me? All right, hang in here. Uh, Our creation mandate, it starts at the beginning of the story, and it's woven throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. Genesis 1-1, like we just read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, heavens and earth is another way of saying everything. In the beginning, God created everything. And God's first act in creation is taking the disordered chaos and darkness that's described in verse two, and out of it, God brings order and beauty and a world where humans can flourish. The rest of chapter one tells the story of God filling and forming this world. In in Garden City, a book by John Comer, he points out, In between the opening line and the closing paragraph of Genesis 1, the narrative is filled with metaphor after metaphor for who God is and what God is like. God is an artist, a designer, a creative. He's an engineer, a builder, an ecologist, a zoologist, an expert in horticulture, a musician, a poet, a king, a shepherd. And as the pinnacle of all his creative work, God makes humans and he makes them in his image. Verse 26, let us make mankind in our image. Now we hear this language used at church all the time, but understanding what being made in the image of God really means is super significant, especially in the way that it shapes our role and our purpose in life. Image of God in Hebrew refers to an idol, an idol that exists as a visible representation of an invisible being. That's us. You and I, we're the creator's representatives to his creation. You and I, we exist to make visible the invisible God, showing what God is like to the world. We make visible the invisible God. Image of God, though, isn't a phrase that's unique to the Bible. In the ancient Near East, it was used exclusively in reference to the king. Kings in ancient Mesopotamia were believed to bear the very essence of God and therefore acted on his behalf. Only the king was able to know God in a deep way. Only the king could know the divine in this special way. And the creation of all other humans was viewed more so as a convenient source of cheap slave labor for the gods to use to get their work done. But the theology of the image of God in Genesis stands in stark and stunning contrast to all other ancient creation stories because it claims that all human beings, not just reigning rulers or societies, oligarchy, All of us are made in the image of God. We are all royalty, and as such, we were made to rule. The story continues, verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. The word rule is radah in Hebrew, and it means to reign, to have dominion over, or to scrape out 
One Hebrew scholar translates it as to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. I love that. From the start of the story, God's been looking not for puppets, but for partners, partners to help scrape out all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. This is our role as image bearers, to reflect God's character and to continue his work by ruling. But what does this ruling look like in our everyday life? We don't use language uh, like this. Check out verse 28. Describes what this ruling looks like. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. To rule means to be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it. But again, not language that we really use today. So what does it really mean? At face value, I think a lot of us could guess what it means to be fruitful and increase in number. Uh, This has a lot to do with like getting married and growing a family, but it's more than that. It's way more than that. And we know it's more than that than, than just populating the earth because the animals are pretty good at doing it. They're really good at being fruitful and increasing in number, but that's not considered ruling. The key is in the next line, fill the earth. The idea here is for Adam and Eve to take their family and make it into something more, a society. Filling the earth in the words of Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey is the work of growing families which become neighborhoods and then they create communities where people go to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and on and on it goes. So we rule by creating and making something more out of the raw material of the world around us. And lastly, subdue. This word's important, it means to bring order out of chaos, harmony out of discord. Subduing is about ruling in a particular way, a way that is life-giving for the people around us. This, friends, is our creation mandate, or some call it our cultural mandate. And theologians call it this because it's a command to create culture. To be culture creators wasn't just a pre-fall call in command. Even though sin brings chaos into the world, God remains committed to redeeming and renewing his creation through you and I. To God's people dealing with the darkness and disorder of life in exile, he says this through his prophet Jeremiah, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? In Isaiah 43, God goes on to say through the prophet Isaiah, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. As God's people are waiting for God to act and end the exile, what they were really waiting for was a kind of redemption that would last, a new creation when God would finally come and make all things new. John, unlike any other gospel writer, skillfully and artistically connects the story of creation in Genesis with the new creation story that could only come through Jesus. John 1.1, he writes, in the beginning was the word. 
And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. And then this, the scandal of it all, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus shows us what it's like to be fully human. His rule isn't marked by misguided attempts to control, coerce, or dominate. Instead, he rules with grace and love, even towards his enemies. Rulers of Jesus's day picked up a sword and wielded their political power for personal gain, but Jesus picks up a towel and a wash basin and he sought the good and the flourishing of others through service. He heard the ache and he leaned into the longing of the world around him with self-giving love. He created, he created space around a table for the oppressed and the marginalized. And in doing so, he models for us what it looks like to partner with the Father, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't just critique or judge He doesn't just critique the the disorder, the darkness and the destruction of his day. He pushes back against it by bringing life, healing and flourishing to a world in desperate, desperate need of it. And until the day comes when Jesus returns to bring about the fullness and completeness of this new creation, you and I are called to do the same. In Walter Brueggemann's book, The Prophetic Imagination, he points out how, and this is so good, so if you're not listening at this point, like just tune in for this quote, it's a banger. He says this, faithful prophets engage not only in critique of the established order, but also in prophetic energizing, where they present an alternative vision and invite people into a new way of being. Come up for air, you did it. So what does this all have to do with us? Well, I think in our city, especially with what it's been through in these last few years, we've got the critique part down. Like we've gotten really good at critiquing and judging. When people find out that I live in the heart of downtown Portland, uh, they usually give me some variation of this response. Really? Isn't that hard? Isn't it kind of scary down there? The homeless situation is just so bad. The city's dirty. We used to go downtown all the time, but Portland just isn't what it used to be. I get it. There's a lot of truth in that critique. But as co-creators, we are called to do more than just critique. We're called to see beyond the present order and to imagine a more hopeful, just, healing way of life for fellow neighbors. We're called to creatively imagine another way that it could be and to take one faithful step at a time and cultivate it. But let's be real. Moving from critique to prophetic energizing is often a whole lot easier said than done, amen? It is. There are real obstacles that we face when we set out to build a bridge between our creative imagination and reality. We get tripped up on these obstacles and this is part of the teaching that I probably have the most real life experience in. I'm sure there's a ton of obstacles that we would talk about, but we're just gonna cover a couple. One of the big ones I think for us is this obstacle of fear, fear of failure, 
fear of disappointing someone, fear of rejection, fear of you fill in the blank. Creating requires risk. And to risk is to be vulnerable. To put your idea, your dream, your story, your song, your work, whatever it is into the world is a vulnerable thing to do. It leaves you open to the critique of others and it requires you to let go of control. And in a culture that's known for promoting and prioritizing the appearance of success by maintaining control, calculating risk and mitigating it at all costs, it's no surprise that we are so easily prone to falling prey to our fear. Fear is normal, but the kingdom invites us to respond to that fear with faith, childlike faith. Children innately know that they have very little control over their lives. And when the home is healthy, they also have no problem asking for what they need and trusting that they will be provided for, taken care of. They have a sort of confidence in their parents' ability to take care of them, to provide for their needs. And in the same way, hey, Jesus reminds us to stand confident on the promises of our good father and exercise faith when we can't quite see how it's all gonna play out. Control is an illusion. May we recapture a childlike faith. I think another big obstacle is comparison. We've all been there, right? We have an idea, we start to run with it, we start picturing how our art's gonna look in that room or how that blog post is gonna bless the internet or whatever your thing is, and then you hear what your friend is doing. Or you see your idea being done by someone else better and you just start to deflate. This, it, this kind of comparison, it kills. It kills creativity, it robs you of creative joy, and it snuffs out a dream before it ever had a fighting chance. When we get caught up in comparison, the way of Jesus reminds us to obey, to obey. In John 21, there's this, there's this story of how just after Jesus tells Peter that he's gonna die a martyr's death, which is heavy news, Peter's response is so much like your and I's. Peter, Here's this news, and then he looks at his friend John and then back at Jesus and says, what about this guy? What about him? To which Jesus responds, what's that to you? You follow me. Here's the thing, I think keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus through obedience is what helps drown out the distracting noise of comparison and frees us to creatively contribute in the way that God has uniquely gifted us. Deacon Lawrence said it like this, obedience does not rob us of freedom, rather it frees us to employ the full range of our gifts and talents in service to the master. That's so good. Man, we could talk about so many other obstacles that stand in the way of creativity, things like consumerism, individualism, scarcity mentality, all of which trigger this impulse inside of us to take care of me and mine before anybody else. But we don't have time to get into all of that. So I just wanna land with one question. What if, what if we didn't let fear or comparison or consumerism or individualism or scarcity stand in the way of continuing God's creative work of renewal in the world? What if we engaged 
What if we engaged in the discipline of dreaming with God? What if? Check out this video. What if? It's like one of my favorite questions. In fact, I spend way too much time thinking about what if around everything. You know, whether it's what I'm going to do tomorrow or whatever I'm going to do next week. But the thing is, is we're at a unique moment in our culture, in our society, where everybody's asking, like, what if? I think post-COVID, as the church has kind of turned the corner uh, into what it's going to become, it's having to ask itself this question, like, what if? Well, what if we started thinking about our physical space in really different ways? Like, what, what if we looked at the church building itself as like a resource that God has given us, that he's allowing us to open up the doors and say, come, Like, we want to help resource whatever the thing is that God's put on your heart. I mean, what if the church was a space where people could come and grab a cup of coffee and begin doing the hard work of connecting and rebuilding the culture and the community and the society and the the neighborhoods that we live in? What What if our physical space acted that way? And what if our social space was one of resourcing? What if we saw ourselves as not just a place to get enough donations to hold it all together, but to actually become the kind of place where resources would flow into the church for the sole purpose of going out? What if we became the central point for helping starting new things in your neighborhoods? What if we became the kind of place that we saw, hey, how do we help this school over here? How do we help this community over here? How do we step into the very real needs of our neighborhoods, of, of our people, of our teenagers, of our, of our elderly? What does it look like for us to step into the very real needs of the people that we live around every single day? What if? That's the question that keeps plaguing me. That's the question I keep asking. What if? We said, anytime, any place, God, we are going to follow. And we just gave him everything. God invites us to dream with him. The discipline of dreaming with God is about intentionally bringing him into our deepest aches and leaning into the longings of our lives and the world around us in partnership with God as his co-creators. And this discipline requires all of us to ask that question, what if? Jessica and Ben started to ask the question, what if, over their front yard. They started dreaming with God about creating a space where people can come to discover and walk out their identity. Jessica sensed God giving her this vision for a kingdom greenhouse, a place to grow kingdom seed until it's strong enough to be sent out a place where people are encouraged and their gifts are given a place to grow. Her house sits in the center of four schools, all of which are less than a mile away. And so rather than looking for a spot to build offsite, they thought to themselves, why not here? We have the space. What if this was a safe place for students to come after school to have fun and rest? Jessica's background is in design, so she drew up a floor plan and the physical space to add onto their front yard and is currently taking one faithful step at a time. They don't know how the addition's gonna be built. They don't have the resources to make it all happen. But she told me this, I love this. She said, I'm done basing my yes on money instead of faith and obedience. Someone's gotta give an amen to that. Yeah. And so... They, along with their family, are moving forward in trust. 
Ethan Morell, he loved playing uh, with circuit building kits as a kid, which grew into a full-on love for robotics in high school. When he was at camp, he started to dream with God about using his robotic skills to better the prosthetics for those with limb difference. And then during a class that he had with free time, he started building a project. He started to see this dream become a reality and put his hand to building an exoskeletal arm. And yeah, he's single for all the ladies in the room. (laughs) For me, it was creating cooking club. I was fresh out of college, a year into marriage and starting my first full-time big girl job. And post-grad life was not what it was hyped up to be. No longer having the crutch of college clubs to curate friendships or semester syllabuses to tell me what to do, I felt so disoriented. I was pretty lonely. The transition was really tough. I I don't do very good with transition. Uh, And I needed community to be in it with me, a place to show up as I really was. And so me and my best friends started cooking club a weekly rhythm of cramming into the little kitchen of Jordan and I's first home, which was a pool house and a professor's house. And we would show up with with different ingredients that we would all contribute to just make a meal together. Cooking was pretty much new for all of us. And so half the time we didn't know what we were doing and the meals were average at best, but they healed something inside of us. They nourished way more than our bodies. That rhythm of contributing what we had and making something together and taking time to share the real stuff of life and just holding the space, holding the space of tears and of joy and the transition together, it marked us, all of us, in a real way. Creation, friends, is key to becoming a King Jesus family. It's how others are brought into this family and how the world gets to experience the tangible love and goodness of God. And so as we, as a church, prioritize and saturate our lives in the presence of God, he begins to form us. And that formation work isn't just for us to stay inside of us. It's made to work itself out into the world through creativity and creation. The things that God is creating in us are made to move through us. And so for you, what is it? When you listen to the world around you when you're at school or you're at the office or you're in your home or you're on a run, when you listen in those places, what is the ache that keeps catching your ear? What do you see and think that, that needs to change? And what if? What if God wants to dream with you about creating that change? What if? I don't know what it is for you, but I know that this is the call for all of us as his image bearers, that our role to rule alongside of him as co-creators requires us to saturate our lives in his presence, be formed into his likeness, and then be an agent of change that mobilizes the mission of God wherever we go to bless the world for the flourishing of our friends and fellow neighbors. So what if, what is that for you? 
As we close, I just want to spend a time creating some space for us to do just that, the discipline of dreaming with God, of taking time to intentionally be present to that ache that we hear, that we sense within ourselves, and bring it into his presence. And so if you would just clear your lap, we're just gonna create space for a moment to do that now. And I'm just gonna invite the Spirit to come, pray that ancient prayer of come Holy Spirit. We know that you're already here, but we pray this, asking that you would help us awaken to your presence right now in this moment. Lead us into the awareness of your loving presence. Come, Holy Spirit. And right now, Jesus, we just ask that you would begin to tune our ear into that ache that you want to bring our attention to. We give you permission. We confess that, God, the good life that we're after doesn't look like hoarding or consuming, it looks like generosity. It looks like self-giving love for the good of others. Tune us in right now, God. Maybe as you were listening and as we were reading the scriptures, the spirit, um, you sense it's just doing something in you. And maybe, I just have a sense that for some in the room, you can't help but hear this topic and feel disappointed maybe disappointed of how a dream that you had was just broken, didn't turn out the way you thought it would, didn't happen in the time that you thought it should. I just think that the Spirit wants to to be with you in that disappointment, to bind up your broken heart, to comfort you by His Spirit and renew you to a place of dreaming again And so I'm just gonna ask if that resonates with you, if you feel that grief, that lament over this idea of dreaming with God, I just want you to raise your hand. And we're just gonna ask for the comfort of God to fall on you afresh. If that's you, just raise your hand. Just as a way to say, yeah, that's me, I confess that. I see you. Thanks for being brave. It's the spirit of the living God. Restore what's been broken. Give us perspective. Remind us of the example of Joseph who was given a dream and it went a million different directions. It's disappointing. And yet, you are the God that is faithful to complete what you start. And so for those in the room who are feeling the weight of that disappointment, I just pray, come Holy Spirit, would you connect us, remind us again that we have a Father that is faithful to finish the good work that he has started. And so God, restore us into a place of confidently walking with you in partnership to dream again. Heal us, God. I think there's another group of people in the room right now who you know what the thing is. You've heard the ache, it's deafening. And you have maybe an idea of what it looks like for just the the next step that the Spirit is leading you to take, Uh, but you haven't done it. (laughs) And there's been disobedience there. If that's you, just raise your hand, and that's me, so I'm gonna raise my hand. I know 
that God's given me a particular dream. He's made it clear. He's asked me to obey and I've just fallen short in that. If that's you, just raise your hand, I see you. When we confess, he is faithful to forgive and heal us, renew us and restore us. And so Father, for all of those who are struggling with fear or comparison or whatever obstacle that's standing in the way of acting in obedience to what you are calling us to do, I pray God that you would help drown out that noise as our eyes are fixed on you. God, give us a hunger for obedience that outweighs our appetite for consumerism. Thank you, Jesus. Would we be a King Jesus family that contributes creatively for the good of this community right where we are? Help us, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.